Hello and welcome to Culture Sex Relationships with me, Justin Hancock. I am delighted to be joined today by Sophie K. Rosa. Hello, Sophie. Hello. Sophie is here today to talk about her really wonderful book, uh, Radical Intimacy, right in Culture Sex Relationships wheelhouse. Actually, uh, the podcast even gets a mention, which I'm so grateful for. Uh, so thank you so much uh, for writing this book and for coming on the show. Great to be here. <laughs> so... Um, Tell me, so we'll kind of kind of go through some of the points in the book, but we'll kind of have like a wide ranging conversation about politics and intimacy. I guess also we should say here say here that when you're talking about intimacy, you're not talking about sex, are you? That's one of the not necessarily talking about sex. No. Um, and this is one of the first things that you kind of attend to in the book. It's like because sex doesn't have to be intimate, and intimacy doesn't have to be sex. Um, so what can you just like overview what we're kind of talking about when we talk about intimacies here Mm. Um, yeah I look at that in the book that uh, people I think sometimes I felt quite coy sharing the name of my book in that Mm. people uh, often think intimacy means sex and sometimes you're talking to people and it's a bit embarrassing to bring up sex but you're not talking about sex so I often found myself having to kind of insist that it wasn't about sex but it also actually isn't um mostly about sex at all um although it's relevant uh because as you say sex can be intimate um but how i define intimacy in the book is is kind of broadly around different spheres of life that are more than or other than work uh so our our home our family friendships um other kinds of relationships and including our relationships to ourselves um including stages of life including death like all of those things I kind of put under the umbrella of of intimate life um and also kind of generally uh to mean what makes kind of like the the core of life like what makes life meaningful for people um how we experience a sense of self and relatedness Mm. in the world yeah yeah and that connection mm-hmm. that really kind of came across as well. I thought that was really well. I love the whole book, um, and so and that and so in that kind of context, it, um, that uh, this kind of makes sense when you go into the first chapter and you're actually talking about the self. I'm talking about so, um, for example, uh, things like uh, various therapies and the way that mental health is kind of treated, um, and and you were kind of making some really. Like important, also we don't want to give away the whole book. Buy the book; it's available. It's out now. Pluto Books, Pluto Press, Pluto. It's out. Go buy it. Um, but you know, so we're talking. You talk about kind of different therapies and um, and that kind of the kind of wellness culture that we have and producing this kind of like uh, neoliberal kind of subject, the kind of the autonomous kind of self who's self completely self-reliant. So can you talk a bit more about that and how that might preclude some forms of intimacy and with others, but also, I guess, maybe also with ourselves as well? Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose I started with a chapter on, on the self because uh, obviously that relationship, our relationship with ourselves uh, undergirds our relationships with others mm-hmm. and with society at large um, and is completely instructive to how um, and how much we're able to engage with other people um, Mm. and our communities uh, and politics. Mm. Um, So that felt really important to look at 
first and foremost yeah. and and then yeah looking at it through through the lens of how we are um encouraged to understand ourselves and our well-being um mental health suffering however we, we might want to mm-hmm. term it um under capitalism in kind of dominant discourses around wellness um and mental health um and yeah I, yeah i suppose like kind of questioning how capitalism inflects those understandings of ourself mm. um and what it might actually mean to be well um mm. how that can't be an yeah. atomized thing yeah yeah yeah, um, yeah yeah we were actually we were both asked to give a quote for a journalist lately weren't we as i as i remember somebody writing i can't remember their name but we'll, i'll put a link to it in the notes if this goes out but um oh, yeah. i think it really speaks to this chapter about how so I think the, the, the nub of the article was like this idea that um, we shouldn't be asking our friends to do things for us because we should be able to go and do those things for ourselves. So, for example, we should just be able to like go to therapy and do the work on ourselves. And that's kind of like entered the, the well, not just entered the discourse, that's become like the dominant discourse of like wellness is that that is just something which is entirely located within the individual rather than thinking about outside material conditions or circumstances or social power relations that cr- that create those problems um i think we're both kind of saying well we can't just be this individual self we do need other people in order for us to do the work on ourselves as well don't we that kind of stuff yeah it was looking at that and i think i think that yeah the article is also looking at uh actual kind of uh help in terms of logistics of life yeah, like yeah you shouldn't yeah. give your friend a lift or you shouldn't because we're adults and we should be able to um, manage our lives mm. without our friends I think most specifically you know the I mean I didn't really I hadn't particularly come across this as like a really dominant no, no, no. discourse on Twitter <laughs> um, but apparently it was a, it was kind of trending this idea that yeah. be a grown-up don't ask your friend to help you move house I think that was a big one yeah. um, and I suppose maybe it is so outside my uh experience or like intentions for relationships that I was a bit like who's who's saying this I don't don't understand how could you not help a friend move house um but you know I also felt like it was important to um respond to in in good faith if like if that is genuinely how people feel looking at at why that is and what that says about how we relate to each other um and importantly I don't think you know none of the none of these claims for kind of what of what it means to be an adult None of them were were saying, oh, you should never ask um, your partner. Yeah. Um, they were saying specifically, you shouldn't ask your friends. Yeah. So I think in in that way, it's it was really reflective of the hierarchies and where the loci of our intimacies are supposed to be and our commitments to each other. Um, at the same time, I I felt you know it was important to say in that uh, yeah to that journalist and and that, to that article for that article that. Um, you know, if people really feel like they're at capacity, mm. energy-wise, um, time-wise, then that's a problem. Mm. Um, and, you know, we can't invent energy and time that we don't have. Mm. And, what, yeah, what does that say about our lives? I guess to come to your, to circle back to your first chapter, it's this thing about, well, um, the individual should be doing things for other people. But any time that they have to do any work on themselves, they should do that by themselves. It's as if there is as if the kind of relation only kind of goes one way, doesn't it? Mm. As in, as in the the kind of dominant idea around 
uh, well-being is we should do things for you. Yeah, like the, the idea of wellness culture, I suppose, is that, you know, you're doing that work on yourself and doing these particular kinds of um, therapies. You also kind of single out certain kinds of therapies as well for being this kind of, uh, for kind of reproducing that even further as well. But it's that kind of, uh, it's as if that we, we can't be well, uh, we, we can't see, we can't look outwards uh, for our wellness we can only ever look inwards for our wellness but other people are relying on us to do wellness for them I suppose mm, yeah no that's an interesting way of looking at it um, I suppose it's a it's something of a thought experiment to think how how possible is it that we could make ourselves well on our own like I happen to think like not at all mm. but you know, I suppose, you know, imagine if we didn't have to work and we spent all our lives, uh, we had, I don't know, infinite resources. We, yeah. we could probably be pretty well in a sense mm. uh, by only doing work on ourselves or whatever. Mm. But we'd also be, yeah, extremely lonely and ex- isolated and then you're not well. And the moment yeah. you need to relate to other people, then working on yourself is, is never enough. You have to work in collaboration on relationships and that constitutes your wellness yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, totally Mm. uh and if you're in therapy dear listener or if you're one of the many therapists who listen to the show we're not necessarily having a go at you this is not like a you know we're not kind of snidely having a go at you therapy can be incredibly useful but it's just it's the culture around therapy which over individualizes the responsibility of wellness on that individual which is the thing we're critiquing here isn't it Mm, absolutely i'm i'm a big fan of therapy and uh and yeah. going to train as a therapist so i'm a, yeah. I'm, I'm a believer yeah <laughs> i've done it i've done it will do it um all right let's talk about uh <laughs> obviously let's talk about matt hancock um so <laughs> no relation by the way <laughs> so um you were writing this during covid uh, and again, in the intro, you were talking about how tricky that is, like writing about these, about intimacy or intimacies in this kind of way during a time where almost all intimacy was like, certainly physical intimacy was unavailable to us. Um, Matt Hancock was making himself uh, available to more than one person. Uh, and this is not to have a go at Matt Hancock necessarily, but... It there was this at the beginning of the pandemic. There was this like okay, everyone retreat to your nuclear families now. Back into to stick with your partners. You've all got one. Stay there until we tell you to move. And so, I mean, that was quite an instructive moment, wasn't it? And depressing. Extremely, extremely. It just yeah put in such sharp relief. The well, also the fact that so many of us don't live in that in that configuration. Um, I was living in a household of uh, four at the time and none of the instructions made sense to us. I mean, other than we could just stay in our house and Mm. yeah, but there was yeah so little guidance on how to navigate the much more complex constellations of relationships that a lot of people have. Um, And also the fact that, yeah, just not everyone has anything approaching a family to retreat to yeah. um and yeah i think a lot i remember initially like a big emphasis on on zoom calls on video calls mm. also as if that would you know be enough for people yeah. or yeah there's suddenly zoom uh, acquired like a 
some kind of wholesome for a little bit like idea like sit in front of your laptop with a cup of tea and it will be and you'll be fine and yeah. it's just so far from enough and not so far yeah. from taking intimacy and relationships seriously um, and, and as such the pandemic seriously because there was no way to to handle it mm. well without being more honest and frank about how um, people conduct their lives and can conduct their lives and yeah. live um, and I, I suppose it makes sense that the government never wanted to do that because it sheds a light on so many uh, awful things about society and how mm. how people live and it also kind of taught but well implicit within that kind of instruction to stay at home and be in your they never said be in your nuclear family but that's what they were saying in fact they did say at one point, I think it was Jenny Harry's in a press conference with Matt Hancock said, you know, choose a partner or something, you know, now is the time to move in with your, decide to move in with your girlfriend or not kind of thing. Um, and we now know post pandemic that uh, living with our romantic partners was an often incredibly dangerous thing to do because we couldn't escape them, like the rates of intimate partner violence uh, skyrocketed during that time. So it's kind of like, they were saying to us, "This is the ideal form of relationship. You need to do this, and not and we're not gonna. We're, there's this kind of inbuilt assumption that that is the safe relationship, when it often really isn't." Yeah, I watched um, that interview that Matt Hancock did on Sky News, where the interviewer asks him to define an established relationship repeatedly so many times in order to write this particular part of the book Um, to the extent that it just became more and more surreal um, watching it and really funny like as well and obviously like additionally funny um, after the sex scandal that he uh, was involved with Um, because yeah it just it just is the perfect kind of um object to kind of highlight the uh the absurdity that we can just agree upon what constitutes an established or serious or important relationship without having um quite detailed conversations about that and so i suppose the interview was kind of attempting to have that kind of detailed conversation with him and he was really doggedly refusing to engage really um have you seen it was this the one with Kay Burley on Sky News and it was a bit flirtatious yeah it it? was also flirtatious she was kind of coming on to him which I thought was like (laughs) it was really funny (laughs) yeah it was also really flirty um and then the only conclusion he kind of comes to is that he's got an established relationship with his wife yeah but he doesn't go into the details of that Mm. um and obviously a crucial detail of that that you would uh that you would imagine would be implied is that they're monogamous um which didn't turn out to be the case no he was doing non-ethical non-monogamy as far as we can make out (laughs) (laughs) n-e-n that's a new put that on your field profiles everyone the new the new abbreviation Um, and so it's that kind of uh and what really frustrated me at the time uh was just the it just the complete lack of seriousness with which that conversation was taken generally and how there's just a lack of curiosity and a lack of kind of understanding for what people actually need and there's this assumption that, that, that well 
you've got everything in need you need with the, the person that you love um and you know the monogamous person in your life and and that's that's all you kind of need so just kind of stay there rather than thinking about what you talk about in the book is all the different kinds of um intimacies that happen in our life and all of the kind of connections that we really need and we really need to foster and emerge and things that and i'm not saying it was bad to necessarily have a lockdown but just the lack of curiosity to think about okay well how do we manage this like there could have been a way of doing this which was um which would or a way of kind of nuancing the restrictions which would have allowed for some degree of um harm reduction and taking care of each other in different kinds of ways i think yeah <clears throat> more uh, complicated um but um i imagine also more effective uh, yeah 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 uh, i remember being one of the first people to come up with some sex advice mm. uh, safer sex advice for covid and uh, people just thought it was funny like just come on everyone like ah uh, just harm reduction harm minimization this is super important but what does it say about the 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 state what does it say about us and living in uh, neoliberal capitalism that the only time a government is talking about relationships uh, the only well the only time they've had to talk about relationships uh, uh, in recent times is during COVID and the thing that they say is okay go stay in your nuclear families and this is this is the only kind of relationship that there is Well, yeah, I suppose that and, like, how they spoke about it and specifically in, in then in relation to the response to the Matt Hancock affair scandal, mm. I, I thought really kind of distilled the amount of denial that uh, is really important mm. for the status quo of how we understand social and intimate life mm. um, and how it is and should and must always be organised, mm -hmm. particularly in relation to the couple form in the nuclear family. Yep. Um, because that uh, kind of the ideology um, of those forms being um, dominant and, and also universal mm. is completely premised on denial because mm. in actuality, those forms are so far from... Um, being watertight to other mm -hmm. relationships. Um, they're so far from being uh, ideal in that they're infused with so many different kinds of suffering and violence. Mm. Um, and, and also many people are excluded or decide to uh, remove themselves from those frameworks. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's this like really... Uh, willful denial um, of ourselves um, yeah. and of what is really happening around us, which can't be good um, for, for us as, as people and as a society. No. And, and it does cause a lot of suffering, even, you know, simply the idea that the family is a place of love, emotional connection, mm -hmm. care, um, reliable home, the fact that that's so not the case for so many of us is so painful. Whereas if we spoke about that openly, mm. then I imagine, you know, we would have 
fewer problems with our mm. mental health or whatever we want to call it because yeah. it, re- it requires so much cognitive dissonance. And the same for the couple form. Yeah. Many people really aspire to that form of relationship and many people never have that form of relationship and they might really suffer because of that, whether or not they actually do really want it or whether they just think they should have it and it means they're, they're a failure if they don't or they do have that kind of relationship but it's really hurting them or they're finding it really hard but they think they've reached success in the intimate realm now so they kind of hang on to it no matter what or um, don't really know how to um, maybe improve that relationship because Mm. it's only having it that matters rather than being in it and (laughs) well this is the kind of the I mean it's it is a paradox but it's also completely explainable because um, we have successive governments who uh, don't care about this and who'd want to uh, not invest in this but on the one hand they're telling this kind of common sense idea that uh, you know of monogamy nuclear families that that should be the goal of our life and that common sense idea well we can talk about that in a second but they're, whole, they're telling us this should story the common sense idea or like hegemonic idea of how we're meant to do relationships and then saying, okay, and this is what the ultimate relationship should be. Um, but they're not doing anything to make those relationships easier, more uh, more able to flourish, uh, less harmful. In fact, the conditions of 2023 and the pandemic and the lack of funding and the lack of community spaces and housing, etc., as you talk about in the book, makes this common sense ideal of the relationship really really hard for people to do indeed indeed there is yeah the i really tried to focus so much on the book in on how our material realities uh inform instruct and like kind of delimit the possibilities of our intimate lives Mm. um i think because i don't know if this will end up being something i i where i can go with this but i think I i was quite afraid of a certain section of the left being saying Uh, you've written this book, um, you know, you're really not taking into account uh, serious politics or or the materialities of people's lives. Mm. But that's just so central to how I see our intimate lives and what's possible within them. And it's this symbiotic connection that I think just isn't made enough. Um, The possibility of us living fulfilling lives under capitalism is circumscribed and informed by, by our material conditions, by our suffering on every level under capitalism Mm. so yeah I kind of I tried to really pin that down in each chapter Mm. um a lot and yeah that has everything to do with housing and you know healthcare and every you know all these vital segments of our society and and how um inadequate um they are yeah uh yeah and obviously on the left now it's it's picked up sometimes you know people aren't yeah, we need to support families, we need to support mm. people so that they can have children, so that they can... Um, but then, and it's often only done in about those kinds of relationships, yeah. like, let's support people to have families. Sure, but also, what else? <laughs> let's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And uh, let's have five minutes of having a go at the left, to which we belong, I suppose. <laughs> but... Um, there is that kind of sniffiness uh, about about uh, any kind of alternate kind of ways of organising our intimate lives, um, as if it's like a kind of a, 
a bourgeois kind of liberal kind of luxury or something and that like the but it's weird because they just end up selling telling the same story of late stage capitalism that henry ford did you know so for henry dear listener i've probably talked about this before henry ford well it's a term gramsci came up with fordism henry ford the car maker um the deal was that he would pay his workers really well well enough that they could buy cars and become consumers uh, and the kind of deal was the implicit deal was that they get well paid and they marry a woman who stays at home does all the social reproduction raising kids keeping the house and they move into these nuclear family units and you know that was based on some kind of principles that were some kinds of ways of living and, and organizing that have been around for a few decades before then but it was really amped up during Fordism and so this idea of you know man breadwinner woman social reproducer um and it's not a natural normal state you know as dr eleanor yanniger friend of the show will say you know in the middle ages 80 85 percent of us were peasants which means we were all working all of the time um and so this idea of the way that we've kind of organized uh, ourselves as being this like natural common sense idea we've only had for 100 years really and so it's not so when we look at it that way it's actually more a kind of a project of a material project of capital and states wanting us to organize our intimate relationships in this way and it's just a real surprise when people on the left or people wanting some kind of like end to capitalism or a move towards post-capitalism don't see that this is like a necessary kind of part of it that we shouldn't have to just organize our social and intimate relationships in this way Mm-mm. yeah and what did i want to say about that oh yeah the i haven't um i haven't looked into it enough but i think the this i think it might be a tiktok trend really the trad wife thing mm-hmm. is kind of interesting mm-hmm. in this respect like the nuclear family in particular and as you say like it's genesis in like the fordist family and stuff if it's gonna work like it it has a structure and it is about this woman not working and doing yep. the domestic labor and so i think yeah the the resurgence of that is really interesting or maybe yep. probably not an actual resurgence but a social media surge yeah. of interest is interesting because yeah it's like yeah that's that's how that thing works yep. and that's how that social form works and you know people try and tinker with it and say oh no we'll we'll both in the marriage will work and then you've got the problem of the children and then like and so yeah I think that's interesting and I think what often gets missed is or people on the left who get sniffy about this kind of thing I think it's because they really leap to this um, presumption that uh, talking about intimacy talking about different ways of relating and being in the world means that you uh, are um making some kind of judgment of of how we should be living or of people mm. living in more normative ways or um kind of saying that there's a, a radical imperative to relate in certain ways and that's i think really often pr- really presumptuous and that people aren't saying that yeah um and if it such topics were taken seriously then it would be more it would be more apparent that the more interesting question is like how does the way that society is organized um limit what is possible mm. 
because like certainly it might not be possible to relate outside certain really um yeah prescribed social forms and norms for all number of reasons and i think that's a really interesting question and and much more important question than how we relate well how we relate i think is extremely important but mm. you know whether or not people get married or do monogamy or mm. live in a setup that looks a bit like a nuclear family like i do agree that those is much more important to think about why people can't do things otherwise yeah. and what material conditions and not only material conditions but cultural conditions societal conditions and uh social norms like do limit our options mm. um yeah it, you know, it is also the case that when certain social forms are so um, dominant, it can be really difficult, not only materially, but emotionally, um, psychically, to, like, attempt to do things otherwise, because we are social creatures and we yeah. need communities yeah. um, who understand us. Um, yeah. Yeah, and when you add, I mean, if we were to kind of, if we were were able to reallocate our resources in this way and to, um, you know, it's basically to quote from Meg John's book, uh, Rewriting the Rules, you know, what if we're treated like friends, like romantic partners and romantic partners like friends, what difference might that make? And I think that, um, uh, I think that a good kind of leftist position is to think about, well, you know, w- what might that do? You know, what might it do not only for our friendships and ourselves, but also our romantic relationships, you know. One of the activities I do on training courses is to ask people, why do people have romantic relationships? And they come up with a huge list of things. And then the question is, well, okay, which of these can only be achieved from the romantic relationship? And they think about saying something and then stop themselves and say, ah, yeah, none of them. So what other relationships can we get some of these, these, these things from? So, you know, we could argue that it's better for romantic relationships if we're going to have them, which, you know, we're not saying abolish the romantic relationship, but, you know, different ways of doing relationships. Um, and to have this kind of, to, you know, to try to just open up the possibilities of, you know, actual comradeship and, and community and bringing and paying attention to that kind of thing as a level of intimacy in the kind of, in the work rather than, being in these little kind of nuclear bubbles kind of shouting like that, that you know, it, there are these kind of possibilities for, um, uh, for like organizing and doing things differently and seeing possibilities of abundance, I think. Mm. Um, and to, so, not, so that not, we're not entirely having a go at the left in my, um, blurb for your book, which you, uh, kindly asked me to give, I was saying, um, you know, this is a book for people who, uh, you know, have radical politics who want who should think or could think more radically about how they organise their intimate lives, but it's also for people who do have a radical approach to their intimate lives but have no kind of radical politics. So that's a little bit have a go at these people or have some ways of suggesting uh, that, you know, a radical view of, for example, doing polyamory, relationship anarchy or uh, any other kinds of, like, seemingly radical ways of relating often aren't quite as radical as they kind of make out are they and what are the possibilities for being a bit more kind of political about this hmm yeah so I think a big part of it is is really moving away from binary thinking around what kinds of relationships are inherently more or less radical um and instead paying much more attention to how um 
oppressive and violent um, impulses and actualities exist in, in relationships, no matter what form they take. And, you know, I, I do think it should go without saying that, you know, alternative forms of relating, whether polyamorous or, or non-monogamous, can be just as rife um, with uh, really harmful behaviours um, and power dynamics um, and sexism mm. uh, as any as as traditional monogamous forms. And I do think that we've kind of got to a point where that should be a given, but as in that that idea, that knowledge. But it's not necessarily, is it? I think, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not really a given that that we know that. Um, and but then you know, taking that idea kind of, um, you know, holding it with the kind of thing of where, but then we don't, you know, we haven't thrown out monogamy because it can foster some harmful things. Right. Um, so we don't need to throw out any way of relating necessarily, unless it's something that we maybe can all agree that is a bad idea, such yeah. as, I don't know, a super, um, uh, super uh, like a misogynist way of organizing relationships yeah. where yeah patriarchal forms of of relations that are just inherently inherently that way that kind of structure yeah. um but yeah kind of moving away from the binary of this thing this way of doing things good this thing right. way of doing things bad this way of doing things Replacing radical one discourse with another kind yeah, of thing, yeah i think that's completely unnecessary and maybe uh rather than overly kind of concerning ourselves with with these structural questions paying much more attention to our relationships as they actually exist um with the people in our lives um and thinking relationally mm. um i think a lot of kind of mainstream dating advice does focus a lot on um these days on kind of getting your needs met mm. um and what you can get out of relationships yeah whether they're serving you and of course there's there's really important things to consider there particularly mm. in a society where especially women have been really conditioned to not consider those questions mm. um in heterosexual relationships mm-hmm. um at the same time i think you know going too far down that way of thinking um is going to destroy the possibility of um liberatory relationships yeah. because we have to be thinking relationally um what i want isn't only what i want when i love you and we're together now and you know but that together obviously being a a thing that can mean many different things (laughs) yeah i think that's um and it really i think what's coming across from what you're saying and it really comes across in the book as well is that the different ways of relating are different glimpses of the possibilities of abundance uh, and rather than scarcity, rather than so when we say scarcity, we say you know a zero sum game, which means that if one person has you know love, status, um, agency in any way, then another person can't have it. You know, I think the point of like intimacy is that possibility of you know this kind of co-created kind of agency and this kind of a, a joint agency and a flourishing um, of of. Uh, of uh of well different affects different ways of um i'm trying not to talk about the rhizome again because i keep talking about deleuze and guitar all the time and you might be getting bored with it dear listener but i'm going to do it anyway but you know the possibility of like there being flow and um 
uh, and not just necessarily between two people, but in the ways in which we relate to everything in our lives and how there's a possibility for a, a kind of lots of different intimate connections that can uh, that allow for agency and abundance to flow from um, various entangled relations, which is, uh, and that is a, a possibility, which I think sometimes people engaging in various forms of ethical non-monogamy, for example, uh, might not really pay so much attention to. It's more kind of, um, you know, I'm having my needs met uh, in this particular way and I have to organise it in order that it meets my needs. And if other people want to organise their lives in a way which meet their needs and our needs crop overlap, then that we can make that work rather than seeing ourselves as in a kind of a network of possibilities of different ways of relating. Yeah, that, that kind of you know, end point if society did move towards a much more non-monogamous outlook really, yeah, does not fill me with hope, this idea that we are just these yeah. autonomous beings who we all have what we need. These are my, yeah, yeah. Uh, these are my desires, who matches up and in this very uh, limited way, yeah. um, it would be great if we were always open to the possibility of relationships transforming us and yeah. no matter in kind of what direction um and in terms of yeah relating more radically and queerly i think uh, uh the question of consent is really important and um how much of how a lot of us engage in relationships how much tacit con consent is um just instructive of how we live mm -hmm. um and these ideas about the relationship escalator of, you know, we'll, now we'll move in, now we'll get married, now we'll have children. And I think questioning that narrative uh, is can make people feel uncomfortable because they, they think, but I want those things. What are you saying about me if I want those things? And I think it's just so important um, yeah. to underscore that it's not about whether we want those things or not. It's about consenting to them and, and also just thinking about how we might want to live our lives and and doing really meaningful and vulnerable conversations with the people in our people in our lives um which i would argue makes for much more powerful relationships um which ideally i would hope makes us more powerful beings in the world yeah. um with more capacity uh to care for people around us and engage with our communities yeah. i think it's quite a sad reality in which um the way that we're told to reify the couple form and the nuclear family um the absolute discordance between that like reification and the amount of care that people actually in practice often put into and see in those relationships mm. can be extremely scarce you know that the idea that you're meant to find this one person who'll fulfill you for everything but what kind of communications are actually happening in a lot of um those kinds of relationships marriages it involves so much tacit consent so much um taking each other for granted and you know if we're going to reify another individual or a very small section of people shouldn't that include um yeah, really meaningful, powerful com conversations, mm. negotiations, collaborations, which can, yeah, I would hope like a way, nurture a way of being that could percolate upwards into the ways we engage with our communities and mm. and our engagement with politics and... Um, 
but yeah. I'm really glad you talked about consent there because um, it's kind of become a bit of a dirty word, annoyingly, just around the time that my book about consent came out. Um, and in part because of a misreading of Catherine Angel's book, like what's been said about Catherine Angel's book is that consent isn't good enough, and that's not what Catherine was saying. Uh, if you want to listen to what Catherine was saying about that, listen to the episode we recorded about her book, Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again. Um, but there's this kind of very uh, narrow legalistic model of consent where people talk about, well, is it yes or is it no, and getting a specific agreement to do things. And what we're talking about here is this paying attention to how things unfold and how we can maximise each other's freedoms and uh, and how we can constantly increase that capacity. And, and so consent here is a set of tools in order to help us to do those things. And so it is these very simple things like making, being able to be vulnerable, creating the space in order that we can talk about what's kind of going on for us and how we want relationships to emerge in particular ways and what it means for our other relationships and, and making the implicit explicit. And part of this kind of project, I think, is that we also have to be really radical about how um, the very gendered society in which we're uh, living in, we've been coerced into living in, prevents uh, some people from being able to do that and, and, others, and, uh, and others feel very unsafe if they talk about their needs or if they have a need that they want to express, which again comes from Catherine's book, which is really good, and that's the, the main point that she was making. Um, and so we also have to be radical. So this is a message to everyone: is that we also have to be like relate radically to how we to how these play out in in terms of gender and stuff as well, don't we? Yeah, I think that's yeah that's so important, and and really important in in terms of yeah. I've been thinking about it in relation to non-monogamy mm. and how women have been. It's kind of. I don't, I don't want to say this in too much of a, um, yeah, uh, like reductive way at all. Um, but in kind of patriarchal understanding, um, women have been told that romantic and sexual exclusivity is, is, a, is kind of the be-all and end-all, really, yeah. of security in, in life. Um, and I think, yeah, ideas, when we're questioning that... Mm-hmm there could be a lot more attentiveness to that. Mm. And, you know, the idea that non-monogamy is radical is a bit of a joke, really, when, you know, throughout history, monogamy's never really been a requirement from men. Yeah. Um, and so, it and it makes sense now that, you know, it might make, yeah, basically, we need to be thinking about feminism in the way yes. we do these things. A hundred percent. A thousand percent. Um and just also from what you were saying there as well, which kind of goes back to the kind of um, to where we are in terms of capitalism and stuff. Like one of the bits of advice I try to give, and also the the ways that I try to live my life with my you know I I do ethical non monogamy, but also have, that gives me I so the reason I do ethical non monogamy or is is that it is a set of tools that I use. It's a tool. It's a way of doing relationships that means that I can maintain very close, intimate relationships with my mates uh, and my family. And my mates would be more able to do that with me if they weren't both having to, you know, I'm thinking all of my friends who, you know, have kids, um, who, in order to live in London, have to work 
very, very full-time jobs, both of them, to pay for their childcare. And then at weekends, they're, not, they're really tired uh, and, you know, looking after the kids. And I offer to babysit and all that stuff. And they sometimes say yes, but, you know. And so if they had the capacity to have more time, they would have, their lives would be more enriched by being able to spend time with their friends in their community, practicing different forms of intimacy. So in that way, it is really material as well. But I think what you're saying as well is is that is that the material conditions that put women in particular in the in these relationships reinforces uh, the possibility for gendered violence. Not all violence happens towards women. Not violence, many men, even in heterosexual relationships, experience violence. But it is this kind of scarcity and this idea that you have to be with someone and live with someone that is part of this this broader kind of background of violent or unhappy or dangerous or not as healthy as they could be relationships isn't it which is where that has to be so having this conversation about feminism but also the possibilities for queer relating is also a really important part of it absolutely and and how queer people have always um been forced to and chosen to live in in ways that are outside and you know sometimes in in outright defiance of uh normative social forms uh whether in relation to housing living arrangements family um and just really the kinds of commitments that we make to each other Mm. yeah i mean that that's where we learn from and those kinds of network, the kinds of networks of care that can arise mm. um, outside of heteronormative forms have the potential to free us up, you yeah. know, because if we have more commitments to more people, um, then we have more care. Yeah. And if we have more capacity for care, then hopefully we have more capacity for enjoyment and have more time. Um, and obviously, yeah, including in relation to having children, mm. um, it is made very difficult to do it in other ways than couple, house, and just struggle on. Um, but, you know, there are other ways um, of being a parent and of caring for children and being in children's lives mm. um, that would make, um, I think, lives of children and the lives of parents um, a lot better. Yeah. Which is the call for radicalism from everyone, isn't it? You know, when, and it's this thing of, you know, sometimes I get complaints about, I had one complaint about the podcast once when I was talking about politics and I was saying, oh, we don't want it to be, you know, a politics where it's a bloke moaning about capitalism kind of thing. But then on the same hand, we have, we have the left who often don't pay attention to any of these kinds of topics at all. And so we have to also, we have to be able to talk about how um, the, the, the possibilities for our intimate lives are massively constrained by the housing market, for example, and gentrification, which disciplines us into putting our relationships into these particular ways and then makes it really even, perhaps I'm repeating a point that I've made, uh, but then makes it even harder for us to kind of um, to have these relationships. I was kind of thinking about what, when you're talking about queer relationships and the possibilities for relating, I was thinking about the programme It's a Sin. Uh, have you seen that? Mm-hmm. And when I was writing about, so this is Dear Listener, this is a Channel 4 programme about um, set during the 1980s AIDS crisis. And it's about a group of friends living together, 
figuring out how they can, through solidarity and through their through uh, kinship, they can kind of support each other through something which was horrendous. Um, one of the things I took from that was their rent was really cheap. Like they were able to do that because they they could live. You know, rent was really really cheap in the eighties, like fifteen percent of what it is at the moment. Um, and so it really is a kind of uh, the housing market is a really good ex- and gentrification is a really good example of how we've kind of disciplined the, the possibilities for those relationships out of existence. Absolutely, I, I'm always quite resistant to talking about like personal stuff uh, in this way, but I kind of think I want to right now, and then maybe I'll <laughs> revise right. it afterwards. Um, just because this question is just so pertinent in mm. my own life right now, I've lived with friends well, my entire adult life, I'm 32 now. And in the pandemic, that went from kind of living with friends, sort of parallel lives, but living with people I was you know, generally close to. Mm. Um, and when lockdowns happened, it, we realized that, what are we doing? We live together, we should live communally. Mm. Um, we should cook together, we yeah. should buy our food together, we should be a for want of a better word, a family, but we should live communally. Yeah. Um, so we completely transformed the way we live together. Um, we made a rotor for cooking and cleaning and everything became for a very short period just really like quite beautiful and it was just felt like this revelation of why on earth weren't we living like this before? Yeah. Um, we Our lives felt so much richer and so much um, more full of care. And yeah, obviously terrible landlord, terrible conditions rent rising all these questions you know continued throughout the past few years and now I live with a different constellation of friends in a different house um and yeah we with the landlord's constantly threatening us with eviction he's risen the rent and it, all these stresses kind of rise and rise and rise and we're I think it's also the age like some of us are yeah you know early to mid to late 30s all kind of my kind of friends and people are it feels like kind of crunch time of like how are we going to live um and it's really it's quite a scary time because you some of some friends are thinking okay but what if I do want to do the thing where I do the nuclear family thing yeah. and and so they're kind of but nobody knows what every other people are going to do necessarily yeah. and keeping those conversations open and and centering commitment to each other, I suppose, is potentially becoming harder and harder. Mm. And that does feel, in large part, because of material resources, mm. material conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it were just possible to apply for a mortgage with 10 friends right. to a bank, we'll just put our salaries together, we'd do it. Yeah. But when that's not possible, and when, like, yeah, it's... You just... Yeah, I feel people's hope (laughs) slightly ailing at the moment in this respect because of the cost of living crisis because of our material conditions because of the housing crisis yeah people it does push people to think okay but how can i how can i get this vital need met of housing how can i you know it pushes us into thinking individualistically or thinking as a couple or and yeah Yeah, that's really important that's really really interesting because it's it's as if there is, it, because the common sense idea is that we'll find, you know, we want the happy ever after. Uh, I was watching a Seinfeld clip this morning on on Instagram, and it was the bit where 
Jerry's like, what are we doing with our lives? You know, we keep dating women and breaking up with them. We're not men. And they make the pact where they're going to get married. And then Jerry backs out of the pact. Spoiler. Um, after Kramer speaks with him. And it's a very important conversation. Kramer's completely right, I think, in my opinion. And Kramer's saying, you know, you need to have like a, be a relationship anarchist. And Jerry's like, thank you. And George then gets engaged and it's a disaster. Um, but there is that thing of, there's some kind of, I guess uh, a Freudian would say here that there is some kind of like maybe some unconscious thing going on that we kind of want to return to some kind of like family that we're trying to maybe uh, fulfill some kind of lack perhaps and that there's kind of nagging sensation that in order to be an adult in inverse commas and to be safe and secure that we need that nuclear family kind of situation which I would say is bollocks um as a good post-humanist but um i think there is something in that 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 you know when there's precarity there is this kind of like oh i can't you know it, when everything feels like it's just uncertain you don't know whether the landlord's going to pull the plug at any point then it makes us feel very stressed definitely and you know yeah and if we have been told our whole lives that safety and security come from certain forms it's super hard to unlearn that and it's especially hard to unlearn that without community around you attempting to do the same, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've I've often met people who say, you know, I'd, I'd like to live differently, but if none of my friends are, right. I'm not going to. Yeah. Which I just think is completely understandable. Yeah. Because we, yeah, we need belonging and we need a sense of, uh, yeah, a sense of belonging to a way of being. Yeah. Um, and that's really hard to get outside of the normative forms. Yeah. Um, and it's really hard to find what, what I think are undeniably like absolutely essential human needs for belonging and mm. security and safety mm. in alternative forms. And it's possible, but yeah, it's it's made and deliberately made extremely difficult. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I think it makes sense that at a certain point, and I think my age range is kind of the crunch time for that. People go, you know what? I just need to. I just need to feel to attempt in any way possible to find security. And the easiest way to do that is the normative way to yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess the. I, I guess if we were to kind of uh, make it kind of like uh, conclude the podcast, we would want to say like. Um, uh, maybe on the one hand, people who are interested in left politics and radical politics think about the possibilities of what if we treated our romantic relationships like a friend and a friend like romantic relationships, what are the possibilities there? And that we just maybe reallocate our resources in different ways to view uh, an abundant way of uh, going about our daily lives and you know to have a glimpse at the possible of post-capitalism to kind of look through the kind of uh, look through the, the mesh. But also, if you are doing, if you are being uh, doing some kind of uh, radical relating, or um, you know, living with friends, which is radical relating and stuff, you also need to be uh, doing something about working with other people in order that we get pay rises, reduced rent, rent controls, uh, safeguard our access to health care, cheaper food, cheaper pints for me. That but I would like cheaper pints. Just campaign for cheaper pints. Pine's getting way too expensive. Uh, and I do a lot of my uh, kinship in pubs, so please. Um, so, um, yeah, is there anything else you'd like to add towards the end of the show? Um, 
any burning points you wish you'd made? I think what you were just saying in that summary was was excellent and it reminded me of something that I think that I've seen you write somewhere that people like relating radically can look like quite normal things yeah and I really liked it it was I actually don't remember why you wrote it at all but one example you you gave was you know a, a married father who really makes time every week to make sure he sees his friends yeah like that it's it's true that that is actually unfortunately quite unusual yeah and I say he makes time obviously that could be a, a real privilege but um yeah I think it, that just kind of says it all like we we, we may not be able to upend our social forms and our social lives um, for really important reasons, mm. um, but we can reallocate our resources and our emotions yeah. and our care in subtle ways that can be extremely powerful. Yeah. And it can build to something even bigger. Um, well, uh, Sophie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Let's do a final set of plugs. So, uh, your book, give us the title of your book again. Uh, it's called Radical Intimacy, published by Pluto Press. And where do we buy this book, everyone? Because you're all going to buy this book, dear listener. You can buy it from the Pluto Press website mm-hmm. um, or independent bookshops. It's often cheaper at the, at the publisher's website, isn't it? And also they get more of the money, I suppose. Don't know to Maybe. both of those questions, but yeah. it sounds like a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> try it. I often get ebooks from Pluto. I think they're quite reasonably priced. There's an audio book as well. Gosh, Not really? read by me. Okay. So there's an audio book if you like if you like to listen to things in ears like you are with this podcast. And do you want people to find you on Twitter or do you want to make that kind of a quest uh, for you know, for the aspiring <laughs> gumshoe who wants to get in touch with you? Go on, I'll I'll give it away. It's um <laughs> at Sophie K Rosa on Twitter. Um yeah. There's you a, should, you like should a, follow Sophie on Twitter. You can. Yeah. I really, really hate it. My mostly tweet <laughs> about could I leave Twitter and still be a writer, that's occasionally what I tweet Same. every couple of months and you, then yeah. just retweet things that I think I should retweet. That Mastodon thing really didn't work out, did it? But Sophie also writes uh, freelance work and it's always really good. She often writes for Navarra Media and it's excellent. Some of the best stuff they put on their website is written by Sophie, so do check her out. Thanks, and uh, thank you so much for listening, uh, dear listener. <laughs> I'll be back soon. If you want to support the show, please head to the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships. There is bonus content. I've done a reading of my book I wrote with Meg John, Enjoy Sex, How It, and If You Want To. I'm nearly finished with that. And there's an exciting new project on the way that I, I know I keep talking about, but I promise you it's coming. It's just me here. All right, so until next time, bye. Bye.